Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, it is a pleasure to be back on this beautiful campus. I love this school. I did not go to this school. I went to Southwestern and then to Southern Seminary, but I love this school. It's my favorite school. I'm not embarrassed to say it. You may have not formed that opinion yet, but you will. I was uh, leaving last Sunday after I preached to go to Las Vegas where I work with planters and church planters through Hope Church, and we're planning in Las Vegas as well as a few other cities. And you know, if you fly, and many of you, most of you probably do, at some point you go through the TSA thing, and this literally happened last Sunday. I put my backpack on the thing in the belt, and it goes in, and I noticed there was a problem because the woman kept pointing to something. She called someone over to say, look at this. They took it out, ran it back through again, and then she motioned for this man. He was a gorilla of a man. He came around the corner, picked up my backpack, looked over toward a group of people and said, is this yours? I said, yes, yes, sir, it's mine. And he said, come over here. So he goes over and he looks at me and says, is there anything in here that is sharp or can cut me? As he puts on his blue plastic gloves, he unzips. I said, I don't think so. He opens it up, he reaches in. Obviously, the computer had identified a pocket with something in it. He pulls out two items. He pulls out my iPad and he pulls out this very Bible. He looks at the iPad, he sets it aside quickly he opens the bible and he literally begins thumbing through every page just like this and then he looks up at me he said i thought you said there was nothing sharp or that could pierce me in this i said it is sharper than a double-edged sword it's able to discern the difference between the bone and the marrow the soul and the spirit he said amen i said amen he said roll tide i said roll tide That's what we do in Alabama. If he'd have said War Eagle, I'd have said War Eagle. I want it out of there. I invite you to open this very sharp book. And it's not the opening that could cut you. It is when you hear it, receive it, and ask the Holy Spirit as you open to the book of Luke chapter 10. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you this morning. This morning's message I've entitled, Letters Letters from a Jericho Ditch. On April the 16th, 1963, Martin Luther King published Letters from a Birmingham Jail. It became the manifesto of the civil rights movement. But he didn't sit down to write a manifesto. As a matter of fact, he had to borrow scraps of paper and broken pencils to answer a letter, an inquiry of a group of white pastors in the Birmingham area pleading with him for patience. They said, can't you wait for justice. Can't you be patient? Do you have to take the tact of being arrested? Does it have to come to this? And the answer to that question and questioning is what produced the manifesto of the civil rights movement. In 54 years, that publication has caused, as well as legislation, progress to be made. Yet in spite of the progress, We seem to be in a worse 
racial, racial condition in America than we were 54 years ago in many ways. Laws have changed, but only the resurrected Jesus Christ can change the human heart. And the southern church and the northern church and the western church has fallen back into a fearful passivity on this subject. I was with a congressman recently visiting our area. He was a congressman from Indiana, and he, in our conversation, asked me the question. He said, is race still a problem down here? I said, race is a problem everywhere, congressman. But yeah, it's a problem down here. And he was surprised that it was still a problem. I said, well, I understand your surprise because you're a legislator. You make laws, and when it becomes codified, you think that solves the problem. The, the problem is you can make a law, you can pass a law, you can change the structure of, of society in, in the sense of changing the structures of society, but you cannot change the human heart. I said only Jesus Christ can do that. In Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, it says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what do I do to inherit eternal life? This is a loaded question, isn't it? This lawyer thought he was standing before his lesser, so he was going to test him. He wanted to find out if his answer would coincide with his conviction that keeping the law perfectly would allow him to be acceptable, to inherit, if you will, eternal life. During the Civil War, young soldiers would be put on the front line. These new recruits had never faced battle before, and it was common that when the battle began and the thundering blast of cannonade began to attack the line that these men, these young men, had never been in battle before, were so scared that they would wonder, did I really load my gun? And they would reload their muskets. And then they would come back again in a moment after another crashing sound of a cannon or the yell that would come toward them from the opposing army that they would reload a third time. And when they finally pulled the trigger, it would blow up in their face. This attorney is about to have that experience. Instead of answering, Jesus asked him a question. That's very important. Look at verse 26. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, do this, and you will live. Jesus is not condoning justification by works. What Jesus is clearly doing is saying he's pulling the pin on a hand grenade, tossing it to him and say, okay, go do it. And immediately we know the lawyer got that because of his response. In his legal way of thinking, he immediately begins to look for loopholes. Verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. Who doesn't? He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? It's a great question. There's a lot of great questions in this story. I want to point out three. Here's the first one, the one we just heard. Who is my neighbor? The truth is we cannot justify ourselves. We can only be made just, but boy, we try. And this guy believed to his own satisfaction that he loved God. But how do you ever really know? The answer is in the second part of the Shema, the second part of love your neighbor as yourself. So he says, who is my neighbor? The Greek word for neighbor, you probably know this, means near. It's a very simple definition. Who's near you? 
Maybe the guy next door, and maybe the person you encounter with a broken down car this afternoon, or maybe someone you're standing behind in line at the airport or at a McDonald's. Then Jesus launches into this story in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead, which was a rabbinical phrase that meant he's just about expired. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down on the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to this place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The journey from Jerusalem to Jericho is a perilous journey. It is extremely dangerous, 17 miles and, and it's a desert, a high desert roadway. I grew up in the high desert of southern Arizona. And, and you can be out on a trail, and scholars tell us that you could identify someone a half a mile, a mile away in front of you, a half a mile, a mile away behind you. And they would tell us the way men dressed in those days, that, that you could say, well, that's probably a priest. He's dressed like a priest. That's probably a Levite. And you'd probably even be able to know, well, that guy's a little, his skin's different, and he's dressed, he's probably a Samaritan. So these people are not unconscious of the reality that there are other people on the road when they come upon this poor man. Now, there's something interesting in this about how Jesus tells a story. By the way, Jesus always is intentional when he tells a story. Jesus always tells a story with you being one of the characters in that story. I have a woman in my church who's written 19 novels, and she puts people in my church in her stories so they will buy her novels. I'm always the handsome preacher. Who's in the story? There's a robber. There are robbers, people who wait in the shadows, who are inspired to kill, steal, and destroy. There's the victim. We're never told who he is. But more than likely, Jesus intended that the lawyer consider at least the thought he may be the victim. You see, the priest, the elite class of Israel, by this point in in the history of Israel, the, the priests were the upper crust. They were wealthy. If they drove, they drove beamers. They were well-dressed. They were well-fed. There was the Levites. They were the keepers, the worship leaders, the descendants of Levi. And then there was the Samaritan. Now, at this point in the story, something becomes very obvious. Jesus is injecting race into the story. A lot of people in my church don't like it when people inject race into stories because we are in denial. We don't like for someone to inject race, and I doubt that this man liked very much that Jesus is injecting race into the story, but he picks the most despised person of their community. When I pastored and planted a church in Tucson, Arizona, less than 1% of our population was African-American. Over 48% was Hispanic, a, a larger number was American Indian. We had serious racial conflict between brown and white, but not so much black and white. And then the Lord in his sovereignty led me to Mobile, Alabama. Immediately, I was in the shock of the realization that I was in a different world. We're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. In the wisdom of Ben Syriac, about a 150 years before the time of Christ, this rabbi wrote, there are two nations that my soul detests. The third is not a nation at all. The inhabitants of Mount Seir and the Philistines and the stupid people who live in Shechem. Can you imagine writing that in your church bulletin? 
I can't stand the stupid people who are coming across the border. I can't stand these stupid people who are coming to take our jobs. The Mishnah, the tradition of the rabbis, says he who eats the bread with Samaritans or the bread of Samaritans is like the one who eats the flesh of swine. Can you imagine what that thought process did for the disciples when they came back with burgers to the well where Jesus was sitting, A, talking to a woman and a Samaritan, and he said, I don't really need anything, I'm full. Oh, my Lord. Jesus ate a barbecue pork sandwich while we were gone. See, all the characters in Jesus' story do something. They all do the same thing. They come, they do something, and they go. The priest comes. What did he do? He looked the other way, he walked around, and he went. The Levite comes, he looks the other way, he walks around him, and he left. Human nature practices reductionism. As as a practice, we reduce complex theological ideas into a reduced systematic way of thinking about them. You call it systematic theology. Mathematicians do the same thing. Scientists do the same thing. It is lethal when you do it to people. When you reduce a person to his skin color, her gender identity, you reduce someone to their ethnic background or their their, their place of birth and origin, and we do it, it's human nature, we're good at it, and we make quick, swift judgments, and we put them on a shelf, and we put them in a box. On the road that day, there were three travelers. What do you think? Why did they not stop? The obvious answer is fear. There have been rumors, too, that people had pretended to be hurt and wounded and unconscious only so that their friends could come out and get another victim. There was fear. There was a big fat hassle. Had the priest stopped and actually touched this man's body, be it dead or just bloody, he would have been defiled and have to go through an extensive Levitical process. There's indifference. There's inconvenience. And then there's just hard-hearted legalism. You know, that uh, karma, that, that idea that, well, he probably deserved it. I don't want to get involved. So who is my neighbor? That's the question Jesus is asking both of us. Who is my neighbor? Who is it that he is calling us to stop and bind up the wounds or to even care or to look upon another person's wounds? Here's the second question I want to ask out of this. It's implied, I think, in the text, and that is, what is the best first aid? Jesus goes on with the third person in the story, the third traveler, verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he headed, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him, and he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn to take care of him, and the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Uh, Can I tell you the answer to the question quickly is that the best first aid is the first first aid. If you have a stroke, most of you are not worried about that right now, but you become more interested in the subject the older you get. But if you have a stroke, you are to be taken immediately to an emergency room of a hospital because they will apply a TPA to you a tissue plasminogen activator, 
which actually reduces the blood clots and keeps your, allows your brain to recover from the stroke faster. So what is the condition of this bleeding man? He is bleeding. The Bible tells us that. He's been stripped. He has no identity. They can't tell who he is. Is he a priest? Is he a Jew? Is he black? Is he white? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us, and it really doesn't matter. The fact is he's bleeding out, and the more he bleeds, the worse his condition gets. He is dying. He is half dead right now. Passivity is a powerful negative activity. Listen to me. Jesus makes the hero of the story the most despised person. Maybe the most despised person was the one who understood what it's like to be knocked down, stripped of your dignity, beaten and left for dead, not considered. It was a man who had been marginalized and left behind at great risk to himself, to his safety, to his wealth, to his time, he refused to look away. The first and easiest step to avoid a problem is to look away from that problem. Let me tell you my story. I came to Mobile, Alabama in 1994, and it didn't take me long to figure out that we had some serious racial tension in our city. So I began in typical form to address the issue straightforward in my pulpit. I had no idea what I was doing. My attempts were met with sweet, southern, but skillful passivity. And people would nod and say they acknowledged this was the truth of God, but they had no intention of changing their attitudes or their actions toward people who live in that part of town. So I withdrew. I justified myself. Uh, I didn't make this mess. I'm not going to clean up this mess. I'm here to preach the gospel, and I made a decision that I was going to build a gospel-preaching church and that I was going to faithfully preach the gospel. Here's the problem. I am convinced that this is the greatest hindrance to the gospel in the church in the United States of America. Our credibility is at stake. Then a Samuel said, and I quote, the most serious thing concerning the credibility of our global witness is the image around the world that evangelicals are soft on racial injustice. One sign and wonder, biblically speaking, that alone can prove the power of the gospel is that sign of reconciliation. Hindus and Muslims cannot duplicate the miracle of black and white together, of racial injustice being swept away by the power of the gospel. And so while I defended and justified myself as not engaging very much at all, I have friends, but we really aren't like my other friends, and they're not in my home, and I'm not in theirs, and we're not doing things together. We live in parallel universes. We acknowledge the same God, preach in many cases the same gospel, but have nothing or little to do with one another until Ferguson. By the way, there's a man by the name of Stuart Berger who was a New York Post diet and fitness editor. Diet and fitness editor. He wrote a best-selling book. You may want to look it up on Google. It's called Berger's Immune-Powered Diet. The subtitle is catchy and very compelling. Look 20 years younger in 20 weeks. The problem was Stuart Berger died in 1994 weighing 365 pounds. And his credibility was buried with him. I wonder if the church's credibility is not being buried 
Will our credibility die with us? So after Ferguson, a group of pastors, a couple of lawyers, and a judge or two got together and said, our city is a lot like St. Louis, and our city is a lot like Ferguson, and if something happens, and inevitably it will, we could have some serious trouble. And truthfully, truthfully, we didn't even know each other. We'd met each other, we'd seen each other, we knew each other's names. And so we began what's called the pledge group. And it was painful. It's difficult to listen to other men tell how they really think and feel. And, and their politics are different. And, and, and their religious convictions are different. And there's, there's huge obstacles theologically in this group. But we stayed at it. We all were doers. And so we all wanted to do something. But the Holy Spirit, the Lord kept saying, this is what I want you to do. And so for every two weeks in the last two years, we sit down with lunch together at a car dealership in a conference room, and we love each other. We talk with each other. We go out on dates with our wives together. We go to films together. We begin sharing pulpits with one another. We begin just learning how to love and then to lead our people to do the same. Joe Johnson's a dear friend of mine. He pastors Mount Hebron Baptist Church two and a half miles from me. Joe would tell you, and this is his words, this is the way he puts it. He said, I passed, he said, Ed Litton pastors rednecks, I pastor blacknecks, which is amazing how much alike these people are. And, and yet 95% of his church is African American. 95% of my church is white. And a couple Sundays ago, Joe helped me preach this sermon. He stood in front of our people and gave us perspective that we desperately needed. He said, you know, in all the political uproar that we've been going through in the last year, he said, I keep hearing people get excited about make America great again. He said, please tell me, when has America ever been great for my people? When has it ever been great for my people? And so I am trying to teach my church to to take your pledge of allegiance to your politics and your ideals and your thoughts about offense and everything else and, and submerge them, baptize them under the lordship of Jesus Christ and say, I am free to think and believe what I want, but I am never free to let that be exalted above the knowledge of God in my life. And so Joe is helping us. He's helping us understand the wound and there are serious wounds. Jesus, Jesus refuses to look the other way. He, he calls us to refuse to look the other way. And interesting, too, Joe made a very powerful point in this passage. He said, do not ask. He's talking to, to black African-American Christians. He said, do not ask a white man to heal you. He said, the healing here did not come from the Samaritan. It came from the oil and the wine, which are sacramental. And the oil and the wine were used. It was the power of the Holy Spirit who represented both by oil and wine in Scripture that heals the wounds in a person's heart. And Joe said the wounds started when slavery started. When you think about it, folks, our global witness is at risk here. There are Hindus who really wonder how in the world a black man can be a Christian when it was Christians who picked him up on the western coast and forced him in one British slave ship named Jesus. And John Newton, a slave, a slave man, a traitor and slave, writes the greatest hymn of our faith. And they're looking at this, and it doesn't make sense, but this is why we need our brothers, we need our sisters, and we need to be unified and one in the Lord. We need to stand together and echo to this world that Jesus is the reason, even though people have done things and we've allowed things and we've looked the other way, that's not who he is. 
He refused to look the other way. Um, our family, the Litton family, has suffered some trauma in our lives. And my wife, uh, Tammy, was killed nine years ago in a car accident. Our, my daughter, our daughter was with her. She was 13 at the time. We really didn't know what kind of problems she would have physically. But in her junior year in college, her back started giving her problems. And uh, we went to the doctor. Her L5 vertebrae, like your L5 vertebrae, has a little rocker arm that affixes to the fore, and that rocker arm holds it in place so she can move. But somewhere, and possibly the accident, we don't know, but that L5 rocker arm broke off. And so they had to go in, and they had to put titanium rods in there. Surgery was very successful. They closed her up a month later in June. As she was facing her senior year in college, in June of that year, she started spiking temperatures. We took her in, and there was a terrible infection. I learned something medically, that all wounds heal from the inside out. And so when they sewed her up, she wasn't completely inside there. She had a pick line that went straight to her heart. They had to put in constant 24 hours. This went on for months of antibiotics. They had to, a, a brilliant medical student developed this sponge idea, and the sponge fits inside the wound. The wound, and I'm not exaggerating, preachers do that. I'm not. This is the size of the wound in her lower back. And they put this sponge in there. They sealed it up with a clear plastic bandage. They punctured it with this negative pressure pump that she had to carry on her shoulder to class every day. And this was a routine all day long. The, 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 the sponge would be changed out two or three times a day. And what I'm telling you is, this went on for a year before that wound could be sucked up and drawn in and healed properly. It was a year. 11 months into it, listen to this, 11 months into it, her skin wanted to close up before it should, and it did, and they had to go back and reopen it again. Now, I'm telling you that horrible detail, and that's very personal. She gave me permission to tell you, so please, but hear me. If my daughter, whom I love, has a wound, I want that wound to heal. But it takes work to heal wounds. The healing is by God, but I'm telling you, we've got to bind up our wounds. Jesus refused to leave this man on the side of the road. And then he asked him, he said, he said you asked me who your neighbor is. I'm going to ask you, you tell me who the neighbor is. And the man could not even choke up the word Samaritan. There was so much wounded bitterness in his own heart. He was so taught from youth to despise these people that he said, the man who helped him. I, I'm not accusing anybody. I'm, I'm confessing I have looked the other way too long. And under God, I've called my church to stop looking the other way. I don't know what kind of context you will serve the Lord in, but you will serve the Lord in a context of race. And you will serve the Lord in the context of race where there is confusion and hurt and fear and danger and threat. And it is your job as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ to hold high the standard of Jesus, to be a reconciler, to reconcile men to God, men and women to God, and to reconcile believers to one another. So here's the application. And we struggled with this. What do we need to do? What big event do we need to do? Do we need to apologize? Do we need to, what do we need to do? I want to give you four simple things that we decided to do as a rec racial reconciliation group. Number one, we decided to smile. Smile at people who look different than you. Smile to those eyes peering at you through a burqa at Sam's 
or Costco. Smile. Mother Teresa said, love begins with a smile. Number two, stop looking the other way. Stop looking the other way. You will confront racism. Sometimes in your own heart, you'll confront it with other people. You'll confront the reverse of racism. Third, lead your church. I pastor a very typical southern church, and this month of February was Black History Month at Redemption Church. (laughs) That's weird. All of my black brothers in my group, my racial reconciliation group, when I told them last summer I was going to do this, they looked at me and they said, you are the craziest white man we know. And they said, you better get your application. You better get ready, get your resume out there because those people are going to fire you. And I want to tell you something. It has not been easy. But God is moving. I want to know what's in my people's hearts because it is my job to make sure they are growing as disciples of Jesus Christ. And if there's bitterness in their heart, if there's unforgiveness, or if they just don't give a rip, that's a very toxic condition for a disciple of Jesus Christ. Fourth, be patient. Be patient. It will take time. But listen to me. Not the kind of patience the pastors asked Dr. King for. It's the patience of doing. It's the patience of persevering. It's the patience of if things don't move at the pace you think they should, you stay at it. You don't stop. You don't stop holding up the gospel of Jesus Christ and showing a world that knows to some degree what he is, who he is, and what he taught, that if we're going to have a steeple and we're going to have a cross and we're going to say we are representatives of him, then we're going to look a little more like him than we do right now. Our church started praying Luke 10.2 every day at 10.02. It's a great passage. It's a very descriptive passage. Jesus told us very plainly how to pray. And he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will thrust laborers into the field. It's the most awesome prayer you can possibly pray because you're the answer to the prayer you're praying. And we started doing this at the end of the year, and God is moving. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you are the Lord of the harvest. And you know the harvest worldwide. And we know, Lord, that we have lost and are losing credibility for the gospel and many things we have tolerated that my generation has just looked the other way on. And I pray for this generation that I speak to today to put an end to that. And, Lord, that you would be glorified as laborers are thrust into the harvest and that we stop living in fear of the certain parts of town where people live that are different, that we love. The guy in the ditch is not a black man. The guy in the ditch is a white man, and he needs to be bound up. And so, Lord, we ask you to heal the wounds with your great grace and your great love. And we thank you for the word of God. Now, what is it you would have me to do in light of your truth. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe 
working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.